Earth. All of you on the good Earth. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 902 for the week of Monday, May 1st, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Happy May, happy spring, everybody. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. It's good to be at the end of April, or at least the end of April as we record. Exactly. As they say, April showers bring May flowers. Um, well, there have been no showers here in Florida in April, so those flowers are going to be a little dry, but that's besides the point. I know pilgrims here, Sawyer, so I guess we're in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. Sorry, it was there. I'll I wish it- I had a phone brick this time. <laughs> <laughs> Kat and Cassie are both unable to join us for this episode, but they will be back very shortly. So you're stuck with the original guys tonight, but we have an amazing batch of stories. So let's just jump right into things here. The first story is that hopefully by the time this episode launches, another rocket will have launched. And that will be a Falcon 9 rocket carrying the NROL-76 satellite. What exactly does that satellite do? That's a great question. All of us are asking that, and nobody knows because it is classified. It is for the National Reconnaissance Office, hence the NRO. This is the first NRO launch aboard a SpaceX rocket. And it's part of a sole source contract, which means that this is their only one as part of their NRO contract. Normally, these are launched aboard ULA rockets, including the Atlas V and the Delta IV. SpaceX has said they hope to get more of these missions in the future, but depending on how well this launch goes, we'll see what that means for the future of NRO satellites aboard SpaceX rockets. Yeah, so I think this was one of the ones where, you know, this was during the whole RD-180 hullabaloo uh, some, what, almost like two years ago, uh, where... Uh, the United, United Launch Alliance wasn't exactly all that sure they were going to have a bunch of RD-180s for this. This is where uh, I believe there was a whole Senate thing going on with uh, uh, Senator John McCain that was trying to actually block the acquisition of the uh, the Russian-made RD-180 by uh, United Launch Alliance. And thus space, um, SpaceX, thus uh, United Launch Alliance didn't bid because they were trying to say, hey, you know, we've got to watch our, our, our allotment of these things, especially if we're not going to get them. Well, that whole thing kind of, you know, came and went. And it looks like that the, the RD-180s are going to continue to flow at least for a little while while uh, either both the we await the uh, the 
the uh, BE4 or um, the AR1, BE4 being developed by Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, of course, AR1 being developed by Aerojet Rocketdyne. So, uh, we uh, that that's the story behind that. But uh, as you said, Sawyer, the the launch will occur somewhere between that. You know, that, what is it again? Two a two hour launch window between seven a.m. Um, tomorrow morning, Eastern Daylight, and um, you know that it, it's a two hour launch window. I believe. Correct. It is a two hour launch window. It will occur sometime in that launch window. We don't know if they're targeted in the beginning or not, like most companies usually do. But the window opens at 7 a.m. on April 30th, lasts for two hours. And they will cut off coverage after the separation of the first stage. However, unlike past ULA launches where the coverage completely cuts off, there will still be coverage. It will just switch to the first stage, which is scheduled to land at landing zone one shortly thereafter. Right. Um, and because of the, the weight of the spacecraft, it will allow um, uh, SpaceX to go ahead and land the booster. There was a couple of, uh, I believe there was one other launch uh, just recently, as a matter of fact, where SpaceX didn't could not land the booster. They just considered it expendable. And that was because of the weight of the spacecraft. So, uh Again, fingers crossed. Hopefully things go well. And by the time you are listening to us, there should be a new bird in the sky, courtesy of of, uh, of SpaceX. Uh, while we're talking about SpaceX, uh, we appreciate you guys when you contact us. We've gotten a whole bunch of emails asking where we were, which thank you to everybody who has. Uh, as always, when we put out an episode, we ask you to comment if you have any. Uh, Mark Wilson sent us a tweet at Talking Space, uh, and he said that we recall SpaceX disrespecting you during a launch, and we know you claim to support them now. It doesn't sound like it. And I did want to address that, because this is something that, you know, we talked about last episode, and we tried to emphasize, and we try to emphasize every episode, that when we talk about companies like this, we want them all to succeed. The goal of the space industry is to get payloads into space, and that's what we want to see. We always want them to succeed. We hate reporting on explosions because that's not only billions of dollars, but hundreds of hours of work that amazing people have put in to make this technology. And to see it fail is always a horrible thing. So we don't want anyone to fail. We want them to succeed. We want them to be able to make innovations and things. And yes, in the past, they're public relations team has not been the best just because their PR team may not be the best doesn't mean the company isn't doing great things. And uh, I do want to clarify that. And also I should specify that from when we spoke to them, the two, the three times that I've interacted with SpaceX public relations, one of them was at the COTS two plus launch in 2012. Their PR was not as great there. Uh, They were there for Orion or um, for I believe it was Orion or one of the commercial launches, and it was also not great. That's, <laughs> those were our big complaints. But when I was there on April 8th, 2016 for a CRS launch, that was the booster that just reflew. by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't say anything bad about their PR team there. They had someone there who was watching the landing with us when it happened for the first time. And um, they were very open about that. Elon Musk was available at a press conference and you know answered every question including one of mine. So, you know, they've improved. Is there always room for improvement? Yeah, but that's with any company. Yeah, so to, to, to fill in some, some uh, stories there, yeah, the, the, the unfortunate 
uh, memory I have of uh, of SpaceX uh, PAO was STS-134, and uh, uh, I believe, believe it or not, I think it was the orbital ATK launch. Um, OA, uh, OA4, when we were down there for that, they actually had us outside uh, outside of pad uh, 39A, and there was not a SpaceX presence at all. Uh, the uh, NASA PAO uh, individual was the one going ahead and, and calling the shots for us, where you know Boeing and and um, and ULA and and uh, Orbital ATK had their their people standing at you know, all standing by for us. Uh, there were, there was absolutely no SpaceX present at, presence at all at, on 39A. Correct. We uh, were outside the fence in the grass, getting eaten alive by bugs while yeah, they had that- a makeshift setup and a NASA spokesperson, of which they released information it turns out they weren't supposed to yeah and then spacex had to update it a few days later but we then went to the launch pad like where the rocket was going to be standing 24 hours later and they were showing us the white room being built there was supposed to be a pao presence at the northeast astronomy forum last year in 2016 and they had a table there and the only thing there was nobody at the table but um there was some nasa paraphernalia over there about uh, the commercial crew and the commercial cargo program but that was really about it um they they really didn't go ahead and and give us anything or give the public anything when saying hey we're spacex so uh whereas the 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 ula presence was was just amazing so i think that there's still been a learning curve um as far as what what they need to do but it's sawyer it's good to hear that 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 is is sort of happening and there are corrections being made, and there are course corrections being made. And to reemphasize uh, what you were saying, Sawyer, again, we don't like reporting on mishaps here. We hate it when it happens. We want all of these firms to succeed. We really do. Because if these firms succeed, U.S. Space Launch succeeds. It's back. This was a, a economic center that we lost. We had the, the stranglehold on it years ago, and we lost it after after shuttle came in. And um, we're just slowly getting that that experience back and that that expertise back. And once we do, it's going to be formidable. We're going to have several companies involved in in in, um, in commercial launch. Um, we'll have SpaceX going with. Um, their uh, Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavies. We'll have United Launch Alliance going with with, uh, with the Vulcan. Currently, they have uh, uh, the uh, uh, Atlas V and uh, the uh, the uh, Delta IV Heavy and the Delta IV. Uh, they, uh, and Orbital ATK is getting into the business. They are uh, talking with... Um, with the uh, U.S. Air Force about uh, their requirements, and they are building a new vehicle accordingly. Uh, so it's it's an exciting time, and let's not forget uh, Jeff Bezos with uh, uh, Blue Origin, uh, both the New Shepard and the New Glenn boosters that that are 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 under development and going like gangbusters. So this is going to be a real interesting market to watch in the coming future. Uh, I I do appreciate the question. I do appreciate the input. Let us know. Uh, keep the uh, the uh, Twitter posts coming. And, you know, you could even tap uh, Sawyer and myself um, 
on Twitter if you see us and, and ask a question there, or let us know what's going on through the uh, at Talking Space uh, Twitter feed. We'd love hearing from you guys, and uh, we will respond. Hey, I got something to throw in from uh, my side of the house. I'm a, I'm a maintenance guy. I work on electronic systems for the FAA and has nothing to do with the aerospace or, uh, I guess, the space community. But I saw some Twitter messages uh, two days ago on April 27th from Virgin Galactic, and I'm just going to read them uh, one of three. One key part of building the world's first commercial space line, having a superstar maintenance team. Kudos to our space wrenches who earned us a FAA Diamond Award of Excellence, something no commercial space company had ever received. Special kudos to Tommy L. and Javier G. for earning individual gold awards, the only two in the entire Van Nuys FISDO Flight Standards District Office service area to do so. So Virgin Galactic, who just a short few years ago had one of those mishaps, has come back and gotten a FAA Diamond Award of Excellence. If you want to ask me who would you like to go fly on, I'd fly on Virgin Galactic. I'd certainly fly on the other providers. But with this award and the recognition that they've gotten, first ever for a commercial space company, not bad. Not bad. Oh, exactly. And uh, they talked a bit about that on Bill Nye's new show, Bill Nye Saves the World, on their space episode on Netflix. If you haven't, go ahead and watch that uh, that episode in particular if you haven't seen any of them. Uh, it's interesting to hear their comments on them getting back into space. But again, we want all of them to succeed. Yeah, it does it sound like we're bashing SpaceX sometimes? Yes. Are we? No, we want them to succeed. And part of wanting them to succeed is honestly being hard on people when they don't live up to their expectations. And we will do that for anyone and everyone, NASA included, because we want them all to do well. And if that means, you know, saying that they're not doing as well as we think they can... We'll say it, but we want everyone to succeed in the end. Okay, end disclaimer, end soapbox. We talked last week about another launch, and that was of an Atlas V carrying the orbital ATK Cygnus resupply vehicle. That successfully docked to the International Space Station on Saturday, April 22nd. That was captured and then birthed, is the correct term, to the ISS shortly after 6 a.m. and then three hours later is when it was actually burst to the space station, bringing up a whole bunch of supplies to the current crew of six. Yeah, the SS John H. Glenn Jr. Uh, John Glenn, you're you're back in orbit. Uh, at least your namesake is, and uh, it was a, a kind of a I don't know, kind of a uh, I, I don't want to say emotional moment, but it it, it was it was really kind of cool seeing that that namesake attached to the ISS and and attached to uh, uh, and, and delivering those three tons of, uh, of logistics of, uh, of of science and of uh, some really great uh, great supplies that they're that they're going to need to carry out the mission so uh, it's time to dust off the science and get to work and that's what the crew is going to be doing for a little while if I recall Sawyer uh, the SS John H. Glenn is going to stay on board for I believe the game plan is at least until June and uh, then we'll come home Correct. Or, it is supposed to stay up there for three months and we'll be doing science all the way until it burns up, including more of the Sapphire experiment, which involves how fire happens in space. 
Right, and and I believe too they're going to deploy three CubeSats from Cygnus as well. Cygnus is turning out to be a uh, <laughs> a bit of a workhorse in its own right. It is. Uh, I'm I'm beginning to think that that you could almost and I, this is something I should ask somebody at Orbital ATK about. Um, is there a game plan to kind of lease out a Cygnus spacecraft to independent uh, entities that want to go ahead and perform autonomous space space experiments in, in microgravity conditions? Because I could see that being a platform uh, for uh, for science, you know, being performed autonomously, and it's um, it's turning out to be rather a flexible. Um, a flexible platform. So I'm, I'm sending kudos to Orbital ATK for this particular uh, this particular platform. It's going to be interesting to see what the future holds for it because I think there's going to be a lot more than just delivering cargo. Agreed. I mean, again, the fact that it's multi-purpose of launch vehicles, even that it can launch aboard, you know, the Antares, or in this case, a United Launch Alliance Atlas V. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the, the uh, or, uh, Orbital Sciences or Orbital ATK now is in. They've adapted to just about any booster that's out there. They've already sent satellites on Ariane Five that they've designed, so they know how to adapt to Ariane 5. They've sent satellites on you know, both uh, ULA's boosters, both the Delta IV, I believe, and the, the Atlas V. So they know how to adapt to, adapt the satellite to, to those boosters. And of course, um, the Antares. I believe the next uh, launch will be on an as-need basis, but it is tentatively scheduled for September of... Uh, uh, of this of this year, but that's kind of up in the air. It's going to be based on what NASA's needs are, so that could push right, and uh, I expect it to. I probably think it is probably going to go into 2018, but we'll see, because so far everything has been just really, really going like gangbusters and getting stuff up there, so um, you know, kudos to both SpaceX and Orbital ATK for really dusting themselves off after the, the, the mishaps and, and really getting things going. SpaceX has been, you know, pretty good at uh, dusting itself off from both mishaps they, they suffered so far, so good. Uh, you, but remember, you're only as good as your last launch. Orbital ATK has dusted uh, Antares off and uh, it got a lot more performance out of the Antares booster for OA5. So, uh, again, I think both companies have come back like like gangbusters from uh, from their mishaps. And again, as Mark was saying, you know, uh, with uh, Virgin Galactic, they are also coming back. So, you know, people like a good comeback story. And I think we've, we've got a we'll be watching all three of these companies as, as they continue to to improve. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what they've been doing is great. And I do have to point out that the next one will be aboard an Antares rocket once again. And uh, I wouldn't say it's up in the air. I'd say it's still on the ground. Yeah, I'm, the, uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm letting that <laughs> I'm leaving that alone, but um, yeah, hopefully we'll be there at Wallops to go ahead and bring that to you, and uh, once it does go, but um, I believe the rest of them will be on the uh, rest of the uh, rest of the uh, uh, the flyout for uh, the CRS one contract. This, by the way, the uh, the SS John Glenn um, does go ahead and and 
seal the requirements for the CRS-1 contract for Orbital ATK. So anything that, that is beyond this flight um, is on the, uh, the upgraded CRS-1 contract that NASA signed a while back ago. Um, just to be, act as a bridge between the CRS-1 and CRS-2 contracts. And I should point out, too, that uh, next uh, next round of contracts, which starts in 2019, we're going to have a third uh, entry into that. I'm looking forward to see what uh, uh, Sierra Nevada Space Systems comes up with and their uh, Dream Chaser vehicle. So we will be seeing Dream Chaser, you know, the, the, the little baby shuttle that everybody has fallen fell in love with earlier uh it will be flying it'll be flying autonomously and it will be delivering cargo to the international space station and bringing cargo back from the international space station so we'll have some more down mass capability which is i think nasa well, that's what nasa was after so again all three of these companies hats off to them and looking forward to some good things Exactly. And uh, speaking of down mass, that's actually part of our next story, which um, going to have to change some definition here. Make that ultra high definition. <laughs> NASA has successfully returned the first 4K camera that was launched to the International Space Station. That is a red Epic Dragon camera. And it still has 4K cameras up there because it had a second first involving 4K. And that was the first ever live 4K broadcast from the International Space Station, which involved NASA astronauts Peggy Whitson and Jack Fisher. Now, the camera was brought back, was used in multiple science experiments in addition to, you know, fun filming in 4K. Uh, it turns out they were able to get more definition to film things that happen during science experiments, which as a result will allow them, hopefully, to see things clearer and see new things in experiments that they're performing when they get brought back to Earth. The live streaming capability, well, that just looks cool. And uh, Jack Fisher, I think, put it best during that live broadcast uh, when he said, quote, I mean, if you look really close, you could probably see into my pores right now. Granted, nobody wants to see there, but everyone wants to see the Earth from this vantage point. And by looking down at the Earth with this amazing new technology, we are able to inspire an entire new generation of explorers. So, pores and the Earth. The two great things that everyone wants to see in 4K. If I remember correctly, Gene, you watched the broadcast, right? Yeah, I saw some of it, Sawyer. The, the, the thing that um, I was a little underwhelmed with the transmission, it's probably because I wasn't in the room and the equipment I had couldn't see 4K. So uh, you would need, you know, specially designed equipment and specially designed monitors to go ahead and see that 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 incredible picture. So you and you and I though were at the Kennedy Space Center for the OA4 launch, and that was sort of the first launch that was filmed in that technology, and they had a huge, huge, huge monitor in the uh, the press press room there showing what this thing looked like and it blew my doors off looking at this thing uh so if this is going to be the future of television going forward uh make sure you've got uh, got your your socks firmly attached to your body because they're just going to be blown off by this picture you think the the high def 
stuff that's that you're looking at when you're watching a, a football or baseball game is is really cool. You ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, and keep in mind, even if you have a 4K TV and you've watched a football game, it's upscaled, so it's not actually shot in 4K. That's right. the difference. Is this was filmed and shot in 4K, and we were seeing it on an 80 inch 4K monitor, which I don't think anybody got work done that day. But no, it it, it is stunning technology when you get to see it, and the fact that it's helping science too, uh, I think, is really the cool part. So, you know, I, I mentioned this before we started the show uh, to you guys, and uh, just thinking about it. I got to ask a question to Mike Massimino the first time there was internet in space, and that was 2009. That was when this show started, was the year 2009. And here we are now, eight years later, and not only is there high-speed internet, but it's so high-speed that they can live stream in 4K, a technology that wasn't available to the public in 2009. Technology marches on, Sawyer, and it's. I think the neat part about it, about this technology, too, and you, you pointed this as, out as well uh, during the pre-show, is that it is going to be used not only, you know, to make your television and to make your entertainment, you know, just absolutely dazzling. Just picture what you could do from a science standpoint. Just picture what you could do, you know, with monitors like this, say, during, you know, a, a surgical procedure. Just picture what you can do with uh, monitors like this, say, in, um, you know, in, in astronomy. A whole new window onto the world is being blown open right before our very eyes with this, this technology. And it'll be interesting to see going forward how it's leveraged. Um, it, it's it's going to be kind of exciting. It is going to be very exciting, and uh, I'm excited to finally see it on a 4K monitor and get to see more 4K broadcasts from the station. So this will be cool. Now, as you said, technology marches on, and so do we. And, well, so are four Russian cosmonauts, including veteran spacefarer Gennady Padalka, who has announced that he will be leaving the Russian cosmonaut corps. Uh, he will be leaving on his own will. Three other people... Sergei Volkov, Alexander Samokutiev, and Sergei Revin will also be leaving due to medical reasons. It's a shame to see them go, but I think the most interesting thing of all of them is Gennady Padalka's reason for leaving, is that he has flown five times in space, accumulating over 870 days. And he's leaving because now that he's not flying, Roscosmos isn't really giving him anything to do. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that was well. If if I'm I'm reading this this correctly, uh, this was on, and I'm looking at right now, uh, Russia Today, or uh, or RT. Uh, he decided to call it quits, and I'm quoting here: "quote I had to resign. I'm tired of doing nothing. There are no prospects that I will fly to the International Space Station." He was explaining dur during his decision, and this is a, this is a gentleman that holds the record. He, he's he's the Iron Man of spaceflight. Period. Right now, and it, it the Russians can't figure out what to do with him. I mean, he he could go ahead and tell you how to design this new spacecraft federation that they're trying to design. This is a gentleman that could go ahead and tell you a lot about ergonomics in, in, in space as well. In fact, if I recall, there was a report back, in, and I'm going all the way back to, and I'm going to dust off my... Uh, 
uh, my pile of papers sit in front of me. And uh, let me see here. Um, this is going back to a report that James Oberg had filed for NBC News, and he filed this back in 2012. Um, Padalka was one of the biggest critics of the lay of the Russian layout on the International Space Station. He was basically saying that the U.S. side is a lot more modern. It, it, it looks fantastic. We should learn from from what they're doing. We haven't really done anything to go ahead and and update our our side of the space station it really needs to be you know upgraded and 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 so on we don't have have modern equipment in there we don't have you know you know it lacks the creature comforts that say the u.s segment segment has he was one of the biggest critics and instead of trying to go ahead and use that experience use padalka to go ahead and build more intelligent spacecraft they're letting him they're letting this this guy walk it's ridiculous so they're going to lose this, this gentleman's experience and i'm sure that if i were somebody like oh i don't know um it might be too far along now uh for uh for Boeing or for uh, SpaceX to go ahead and start working on the layouts, but if I were the, this guy, I, you know, I, this this guy would be the fir- first guy I'd call if I was designing a, a, a new spacecraft. I mean it because he has a lot of that information. The Russians, as I said, they're trying to design a new spacecraft to replace Soyuz, but. Again, they're letting this experience walk, and I think too this this is endemic to a problem that a lot that we've been watching for quite some time. And it to be blunt, Sawyer, it scares me a little bit because this is the outfit that we are relying on to get our crews to the International Space Station right now, and I think the pro and, and this is just me talking. But from what I'm seeing from the Russian program, it's almost like when you have a piece of wood and it's been hit by dry rot, it looks really good on the outside, right? But when you touch it, it dissolves. And that's what we're seeing here. And and the Russians have really got to go ahead and fix things if they intend to be a, be a space power. They've got a lot of plans to go to the moon they're trying to go ahead and build a new booster similar to the sls they want to do this they want to do that that's great fine a where is the money coming from because if i remember exactly the uh, budget for the next 10 years that roscosmos is going to have is equal to one year of the nasa budget which is about 18 you know, 18 and a half, 19 billion dollars. Um, and by the way, it stayed flat for, let me see, how many years? <laughs> so, you know, that's that those are just adjusted for, for inflation numbers. So it, it, you're not going to go a lot of places on that kind of money. I mean, grant you, NASA has a much more larger portfolio than Roscosmos does. But, you know... You're not. You're not going to go unless you make the investment, and you make the investment not only with money but with your people. And I think you're jettisoning some really good experience there. And I think that's the wrong thing to do. 
I mean, yeah. One thing that I was thinking is that, you know, Roscosmos is also cutting back temporarily on the number of cosmonauts they're sending to the space station, partly because they need to save money still so <laughs> that they can launch their new module, which, when I say new, it's been in the works for 10 years now. Yeah. And <laughs> I believe it was called the Nauka Science Module. Right, I think so. And, you know, they're figuring that the most current up-to-date launch time is 2018 sometime which is not very explicit but you know that's (laughs) they're cutting down on cosmonauts and you've got amazing talent which if he's still safe to fly again and still willing to fly again i mean if you've got someone with that much experience somebody better pick him up (laughs) because he is an invaluable asset to the space industry no matter what country he's working for yeah, exactly, and and it it I just can't believe that Roscosmos or, or or the Russians let that kind of experience go. Now he might be you know beholden to some sort of you know non disclosure agreement or saying you can't work for another outfit for X amount of years, but it's uh, it, even after that period of time, you know, I I'd, I'd grab this guy in a heartbeat and and allow him. To give me that expertise and to tell me, look at my shop and say, hey, what am I doing wrong? Or what am I doing right and where, what, what needs to be improved? And it, it's, it's just stunning to me, given this current state of the Russian space program, that they're not hanging on to this guy and, and just, just letting him go. It's absurd. Yeah, I'm going to quote a few things from TASS, which is where this was originally reported. Um, stating that they're hoping to get more new young people in because it turns out of the 27 cosmonauts that are currently remaining on core, 13 of them have never flown. And uh, I also do want to mention in Rio Novosti, they got a quote from the person who is second in terms of amount of time and space, and that's Sergei Krikalev. And he said, quote, I feel deeply sorry over the fact that such a highly skilled, experienced, and highly motivated man is resigning from the core. So, you know, a lot of people are disappointed in this, and we'll see. Sawyer, you touched on something there, too, about the the Russian program, and it's not just, you know, from the astronaut corps. Um, The workforce over there, according to the the report that I'm quoting here from, uh, from James Oberg, uh the the folks over there are just old they are graying and now mind you this was 2012 when this was written the average age worker there is 43.9 years and only 20% are under age 35 so they've got to really 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 get the new blood in and really get get the new engineers loaded with ideas and the new mathematicians and the new astronomers and so on. They've really got to go ahead and attract people to the program. It's the onus is on them, and I I hope for their sake that they could do it to remain remain a viable, strong space program. Right now, I even question if they are. Well, we'll see. Right now, they are you know are going through their seventeenth cosmonaut recruitment round. Uh, the last one occurred back in 2012. Eight cosmonaut candidates were chosen, six of whom are still in the core. Now, one thing I do want to end this with is a quote from Yuri Lonchakov, who's the Cosmonaut Training Center head pilot cosmonaut. Wow, that's a mouthful of a title. But he said regarding this whole deal, quote, Sooner or later, cosmonauts have to quit the team. 
someone has to do this due to a change in his life priorities, while someone else has to quit for health reasons. No matter how deplorable this may be, this is quite a natural process. I I don't even know how to react to saying something like that. I mean, yeah, it's natural. People are going to leave the you know the yeah, cosmonaut I- corps. Just they're going to leave the astronaut corps. Right. But, <laughs> that, that, that's exactly what I was going to, going to say, Sawyer. You always are going to have attrition. People get old. People just say, hey, I'm not going to fly again, so why should I stay around? Um, but you need to replace those individuals. Or you need to go ahead and, as I had suggested, like make Gennady, Gennady Padalka, if you will, head of the astronaut corps and be involved in you know decisions that affect how they're going to fly and be involved in decisions that are going to impact spacecraft design or something along those lines. You need to take that experience. Fine. They can't fly again. Great. But give them something else to do. So they don't, so you don't lose that expertise. And, uh, you know, they're just not doing it. I mean, if, if, you know, it's it's all depends on the person too. If they they say, "Hey, I've, I've enough of this. I'm done. I'm just going to go ahead and you know hang out and and uh, you know do the meat and potato circuit and and that's it and and write a book and enjoy life." And if you want to do that, hey, great. But if if you've got somebody there that has got all this expertise. They don't really want to leave. And I don't think not Gennady Padalka wanted to leave. Um, he felt he still could make it, make a, a solid contribution. And I believe Sawyer, but if, if I recall exactly, he's only what, 58, something like that. I think. He, I think that's uh, in the I think that's in the RT article. He, you know, his age is in there. I think he's only like he's a young guy. Yes, he is fifty eight years old. Yeah, I mean, he can still go ahead and and work in a management capacity on uh, on some sort of project. And and to me, it's just absolutely absurd they haven't given him that. So, well, we'll hope that he does. You know, many cosmonauts that retire do still help out at the cosmonaut training center, but. We'll see where he ends up going and wish him the best of luck. Indeed. Which, while we're doing that, I do also want to wish the best of luck to another person who is retiring, this time from the Astronaut Corps. And that is Anna Fisher, who was part of the 35 New Guys, the first astronaut class to include women that was selected for the space shuttle program back in 1978. She is now retiring, and we wish her the best of luck. Wow, one of the members of the TFNGs. She's the last of the TFNGs to retire, in fact. Wow. So I guess, you know, Mike Mullane, who if, uh, wrote the uh, wrote his book, Riding Rockets, all about the, the TFNG class. Pick it up. It'll go ahead and, and tell you what, a, what an interesting group of individuals that really, really was and how they really pulled themselves through, uh, you know, through all, all of all of that experience. Um She's the Iron Man of 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 the uh, of the TFNGs. Uh, good luck to you, uh, Anna, and and thank you for uh, for your service. Yeah, and while you're at it, listen to episode two thirty six where we interviewed Mike Mullane about his book Writing Rockets too. If you have read it already, thank uh, you, Sawyer. <laughs> had to self plug, but of course we wish her the best of luck. 
Uh, in case you don't know her accolades, besides being one of the first six U.S. women astronauts, she was also the first mom to fly in space. She flew as a mission specialist on the second flight of the Space Shuttle Discovery, helping to achieve the first space salvage, the recovery and return of a satellite. So, what a career she's had, and best of luck to her. Now, speaking of some other amazing things that are nearing their end of their careers... The Cassini spacecraft. It is performing its grand finale, as it's called, performing dive number one of 22 in between the rings of Saturn. It completed its first dive, and it has sent back some spectacular imagery. Gene, can you fill us in a little more on this? Yeah, sure. Uh, the dive occurred, I believe, Sawyer, if you you can correct me on, on the date. Um, this past past uh, past Thursday, no, this past Wednesday, I think it was, wasn't it? The uh, the dive occurred at about three o two. They got AOS back on the spacecraft because it was 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 out of range with with Earth at about three o two Eastern Daylight Time. I believe it was it was Wednesday and of this week. And uh, it will be making another set of uh, 22 dives before the end of mission dive um, that will occur on uh, September 15th of this year. Cassini has been just an absolutely amazing mission. Uh, 19 nations really, really contributed to this uh, whole this beautiful spacecraft. It's about maybe 22 feet tall. So if I remember exactly, there was a mock-up of it sitting at the California Science Center uh, when we visited there. Not too, uh, but when was that? About uh, two years ago. That was at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory when we were at Space Fest okay. uh, a few years back in California, and it was a half-scale model, and even that was huge. It's a big spacecraft. Yeah, it's about 22 feet tall, about just a, a, a hair taller than your average giraffe. Um, but three space agencies contributed to uh, to uh, the science on board. Uh, just an, its its legacy has been just absolutely assured. Um, it's, it's it's traveling right now, I believe, at an average of about 77,000 miles an hour. Just picture that in your head as it's making these dives in between Saturn and its ring system. Now, I believe the width, if I if I recall exactly, sorry, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, is about uh, 1,900 miles in between the actual planet and the ring system itself. The ring system, if I recall, is about a quarter of a million miles. And to put that in perspective, that's the distance between the Earth and the moon. So just kind of think about that for a minute and as you're traveling as the spacecraft is traveling through this 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 ring system or through the division between the planet and the ring system it's moving at 77,000 miles an hour there could be you know particles of dust and debris in that in that area and boom it could knock out the spacecraft now the reason why we're doing this is is twofold to begin with. One, the spacecraft is awfully healthy. It's got power, but is running out of propellant. Okay, and a decision was made back in 2010 to go ahead and use Cassini to the best of its ability and to really, really get as much bang for for our buck as we could we can. 
and let Cassini go ahead and explore the entire Saturn uh, system. And because of that, it has kind of run low on on the propellant. Uh, a few years back, about I guess it was maybe six years ago, Cassini found traces of the possibility of an undersea ocean on Saturn's moon Enceladus. Um, as it passed by, it indicated that uh, it flew through one of these these plumes, and lo and behold, I believe it found out that some of the constituent uh, parts of these plumes that it flew through were going to uh, f- fuel Saturn's E-ring, I believe, but the lar- the heavier particles were falling back down onto the uh, the surface of Enceladus, and they discovered that, well, that's salt. So the possibility existed that maybe that there was a liquid ocean on on Enceladus. Well, just a few weeks ago, on, on around April thirteenth, that discovery was kind of given a little bit more oomph to it with the discovery of hydrogen in one of those plumes. So indeed, there's a possibility that Enceladus could have a liquid ocean under that ice permafrost and if it does there is a slight chance and we i can't say either yay or nay on this but there's a slight chance there could be microbial life now we've got this probe running around the saturnian system it's out of fuel we can't control it do you really want it something like that just going ahead and crashing into a world where you know a probe from earth theoretically could contaminate uh, one of these moons. No, it's not really a good idea. So from a planetary uh, protection perspective, what NASA JPL has decided to do is end the mission in a responsible way and also getting some exquisite science out of this thing. We've never tasted the cloud tops of Saturn. We're about to on those last five orbits, especially that final one when we go in and we're not coming out. Uh, that is going to be exquisite. The other thing, too, is I believe, Sawyer, and you can correct me on this, this um, is right over uh, Saturn's North Pole. There is the uh, hexagonal uh, structure over there. We don't know what causes that. We don't know what's holding that together. And that's one of the things that we hope to learn more about when Cassini makes these these 22 passes within here. Now, now again, keeping in mind, too, that the Golden BB could hit the spacecraft at any time and we could lose it. That's how risky this, this really is. So you didn't really want to go ahead and do this at any particular time in the mission except now. Now would be the time to do it. So Cassini's going to go out, but it's going to go out you know, its its legacy is already assured in science. It has rewritten the books on Saturn and the Saturnian system, and it is going to give us one final glimpse before lights out forever, and give us one final final shot at getting some far intriguing data about the planet itself. And I just can't, this is just going to be an amazing end to an amazing 13-year run. Cassini has just, as I said, 
had a had just an incredible run. There hasn't been a day that hasn't gone by on the NASA website that there wasn't something coming back from Cassini um, since the since the uh, since the launch in uh, in uh, tw- in uh, I almost said twenty uh, nineteen ninety seven. How can I forget? It was in October. It was the very first la- launch I ever saw. So. Um, it, I mean, it's it's just been an amazing run for this particular spacecraft. The mission started officially in 1989 when when the program first ramped up, and it's been what about 30 years? There's been a team together for that period of time, and not only that, everybody that has been along the ride, along for the ride via social media. There are people today that are taking the raw Cassini, Cassini images that you see and processing it in volu- on a voluntary basis and putting those up for uh, for display. Um, gentlemen, I know Jason Jason Major. He's he's been very he's been working pretty hard uh, doing that both for Cassini and and uh, he's part of the Juno Cam team. And by the way, so can you. You could be part of the Juno Cam team too. Just kind of plugging that in there, if you so desire. Uh, Sophia Nasser is pursuing a, a PhD. She's also uh, been uh, doing that. And these are just folks that have just decided they want to be a part of it. So there are opportunities there for you to continue to be be a part of the uh, both of the, both of these flights. But again, I guess the point I'm trying to make is we've been along this ride. People have been along this ride. There's been an extended family out from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to just homes in and around the United States and around the world riding along with the spacecraft. And that's all going to go away on September 15th. So it's going to be a huge celebration. It will be a celebration when we lose the spacecraft. But what a legacy it's going to leave behind. And uh, it'll. It, it's... <laughs> We're going to be looking at, at Cassini data for years to come. Uh, so this problem, even though the mission is over, we're still going to be learning from the spacecraft. So again, congratulations to anybody that had anything to do with the spacecraft. We'll be watching it very closely through through the summer and fall, and we'll be right there with them when uh, when we we make that final plunge into uh, into Saturn's atmosphere. So again, hats off and Godspeed Cassini and Godspeed to the Cassini team. Great, great work. I don't think I can add anything to that other than I agree. Congratulations to the Cassini team on so many years of spectacular science and more to come. Even when the spacecraft has completed its final grand finale, there will still be years worth of science to get from that, if not decades more, that people will still be able to look back years from now and find more science in it just spectacular and a huge congratulations again to everyone who's worked on Cassini. All right. So we talk about the end of Cassini. Now let's talk about the beginning of NASA's future and manned space flight, at least. And that is the space launch system and Orion currently scheduled to launch in 2018. Oh, wait about <laughs> that. That brings us to our next story. Uh, <laughs> Bill Gerstemeyer of the Human Spaceflight Program at NASA has said that they are now targeting a 2019 launch date for SLS. This coming very shortly after the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, released their report stating they believe it is very unlikely that the SLS will launch until at least 2019. And, well, turns out they're right now. 
Yeah, the program Sawyer has been facing a heck of a lot of challenges. The biggest stress point for Orion is really the uh, the European service module. It's uh, currently driving the entire Orion schedule, and unfortunately, it's kind of late. Um, the other points, according to the GAO report, and I'm going to read directly from their um uh, their their briefing here is the SLS program had to stop welding on the core stage, which functions as the SLS fuel tank and structure back, backbone for months after identifying some very low weld strengths. The uh, program official stated that the welding resumed back you know this month uh, following the establishment of a corrective action plan. Um, the Exploration Ground System program is considering performing some concurrent hardware and installation testing, which some officials are saying will increase the complexity. And each time that that occurs, it, it, it may have to integrate new hardware individually and so on and so forth. And that just kind of stacks up. So that coupled with low cost reserves for the program, the GAO is basically saying that, you know, guys, we just don't think you can safely do this. And it wasn't just the General Accounting Office saying it and saying this. It was NASA's own inspector general as well. Uh, what they found with um the uh, the Journey to Mars program and EM1 and EM2, they're saying, to quote them, they're saying that uh, they found multiple cost, te- cost and technical challenges that will likely affect the planned launch dates. And although the agency's kind of combined investment for development of SLS, Orion, the, the ground systems development programs, um, that that whole thing will reach a budget, according to the NASA IG, of about $23 billion, the expenditures by the end of 2018. The program's actual money reserves for the year leading up to EM1 are much lower. They're about maybe 10 to 30%. So, you know, what do you do? And uh, even beyond EM2, what do you do? So what they're recommending is the following. Uh, Complete an integrated master schedule for the SLS, Orion, and Ground Systems Development Program for the EM2 mission. Point number two, and I'm reading directly from the uh, NASA IG report here. Establish a much more rigorous cost and schedule estimate for the SLS and associated GSDO infrastructure, that's the ground system support support for, um, for EM2. Point three, establish objectives needed by dates for key systems and phase transition mission dates to flesh out the journey to Mars framework. It's basically saying, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish with all this hardware? Give us a really good game plan here because the the, the journey to Mars uh, whole thing is is really been sort of a strategic plan. It hasn't been a, you know, milestone plan, if you will. Um, And what the NASA IG is saying, hey, let's get into the milestones here. Point four, include the cost as a factor in the Journey to Mars feasibility studies. Yeah, that might be a good idea. 
especially when you're when you're assessing various potential missions and systems w- to get you to Mars. That includes, you know, the cislunar station, how to build it, how to get there, that kind of thing. Um, design a strategy for collaborating with the with international space agencies and the cislunar space exploration efforts. Basically, saying, "Hey, bring ESA more on board with this thing to try to go ahead and, and drive the cost down further." Um, incorporate into the analysis of space flight system and architectures the potential for utilization of private launch vehicles. For, for transportation of payload, meaning, hey, why don't you go ahead and use the structure that you have to support the International Space Station, a.k.a. Cargo Dragon, Cygnus, and the upcoming um, Dream Chaser, and try to see if you can use these vehicles to support the, infrastru- the cislunar infrastructure. So these were recommendations that they that the um, NASA IG passed along to Bill Gerstenmeyer. Um, he's uh, they sent this off, um, and uh, he concurred or partially concurred with some of the recommendations. So they are kind of working through this. Yeah, it looks like that now that 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 SLS launch has been pushed back again to 2019. And, um, well, I'd rather go ahead and make sure that the system is safe to fly. Um, I don't want to fly any later than we have to, but I don't want to fly sooner than we have to either. I want to make sure that both of these systems, Orion and SLS, are good to go when we when when that T zero hits and that we have all confidence that these vehicles are going to fly correctly. I'm wondering too, Sawyer, and not you know, not to open up another can of worms in all of this. I know too that the um, uh, there was some discussion between uh, the Trump transition team and uh, and the uh, associate the the temporary administrator um, Robert Lightfoot about possibly putting crew on EM one and that to sit that report has also been submitted it hasn't been made public yet but I'm wondering if that is going to factor into all of this I think this audience is sophisticated enough to kind of figure out they kind of saw this coming what do you think I mean. I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, people didn't see this coming. We saw it coming. You know, we've known that this is going to keep getting pushed back. And there's a lot in this report that, you know, should be common sense by now to NASA, especially since they've been dealing with SLS delays for a while. And just a few weeks ago, we officially passed the longest time in between programs, where the time between the... Apollo-Soyuz test project and the first space shuttle launch. That's right. We've now passed that length of time, and it's expected now to go another two, three years beyond that already current longest gap. So you would think, again, these are basic points, you know, the ones that you outlined of things that need to get done. And I I just can't believe we're still talking about this. Hey, Mark, I'm going to throw it to you for about five minutes. What do you think? Well, when we first started to hear about SLS... You know, there was the thought that, in my mind, that this is a a major program. So many major programs that we've seen over the years have had their delays and cost overruns and risk of cancellation. Uh, You know, think of James Webb Space Telescope, among others. 
and you know you hope that things are going to go really well really great and if they do great if they don't you just got to tough it out and i think we're in that tough it out time frame that uh to and, and keep in mind nasa's cutting edge you know they've been tasked with doing the cutting edge things and you know commercial space is having their own innovation their own developments but nasa is really doing stuff that that nobody else is being asked to do they're they're setting kind of they're kind of blazing a trail and in that respect you know i want to see them do it and do it perfect when they do uh to some extent i you got to say no matter what the cost because the cost is is not just what it costs to get to a day of a launch or a series of launches it's the overall benefit that you have to consider you know down the road so um, I'm excited to see that things are still moving, that we haven't lost another program due to a budgetary axe or anything like that. I would say this is a story that we have to keep an eye on, but we've been doing that since this program started. So <laughs> I know I sound like I'm being very harsh on them. I'm just anxious and excited to see SLS launch. And like you said, we want it to be done safely and correctly, but I'm ready for it. <laughs> Yeah, Sawyer again. I'm an equal opportunity basher, and and maybe if we we had a we had our, our our funding in order and all that, and we were we had realistic uh, cost say, cost projections, maybe we wouldn't be in this boat. So it's a very interesting topic that we will have to keep an eye on. And it turns out this isn't the only issue that NASA is facing, as another recent report has outlined. An issue regarding NASA's current spacesuit situation, correct? Yeah, Sawyer. It, there was a uh, report issued also by the uh, NASA Office of Inspector General this past week concerning the uh, the, the EMUs or the extravehicular mobility units, aka spacesuits. These suits, they're, they're about eighteen in all. They first started flying in 1981. They were designed for the demands of the space shuttle program, not the International Space Station. They've been refurbished over their 40, 40, 40 years of, uh, of, of use. They were initially designed to be used for 15 years. So already we're kind of pushing the edge of the envelope with these things. Now, there are... Um, you know, we've added uh, you know, things like the Safer, that little jet pack that's on there. We've added um, new cameras, new lights, uh, some other, other things that are going on. But the basic design is, is almost is just about the same. After when, when Constellation was first announced, there was a whole new development program for a whole new suit. Um, as this audience knows, Constellation was, was canceled back in 2010. NASA, however, instead of uh, canceling the suit program for that, decided to continue funding it and to the tune, I believe, overall of about $135 million to the contractor. Um, um, correction, $80 million, I'm sorry. Um, despite the fact that there was another another program also looking at a uh, an advanced suit, now because of the uh, development risks associated with all of this, as the NASA IG had indicated, there is really very little chance of a new suit going to the International Space Station in its lifetime, which is expected to be about the twenty twenty four range. 
Um, again, there were about maybe 18, I'm sorry, there were about 18 EMUs constructed. But these things were designed for the shuttle, okay? They, they didn't have a lot of the requirements for the ISS built into them. Uh, for instance, they, can't, they really weren't designed to be, be maintained on orbit. But the crews have learned to do that. Um, also, there was a, uh, I believe in any, every component or every system on board the ISS, there couldn't be, you'd have to have, I believe, a tolerance of about two points of failure before you could have like a loss of mission, loss, loss of crew. So there had to be like double redundancies in this thing in each, each system on board the ISS. That was not a, um, a component for shuttle. So these uh, EMUs do not have that design requirement baked into them. Uh, there were some other, other things that the uh, IG kind of went into, but to give you an overall picture, now keep in mind, again, there are about 18 suits overall, or were 18 suits at the beginning of the program in 1981. Now, four of them, um, and the NASA IG report uh, identifies them as suits 303, 3003, excuse me, uh, 3006, 3008, and 3010. Those are on, on orbit right now on the International Space Station. There are three, there are three being recertified for flight. Um, that's suit 3004, 09, and 011. These are all being processed and in various stages of, uh, of recertification. Um, we've lost a number of them. Uh, suit number two was lost during ground testing back in 1980. Uh, both uh, suit number seven and suit 12 were lost on STS-51L. Number 14 and number 16 were lost on, on the Columbia mission. And um, th uh, number 17 was lost on the SpaceX CRS-7 uh, cargo mishap. Um and we've got a bunch of them that are just offline for for certain whatever whatever reasons. One is being investigated for a uh, a water leak. That's suit three zero zero five. Number fifteen has been disassembled because of an uh, a water contamination incident during EVA number eighteen. Two of them, uh, the first one. Uh, which is being used for as a as a certification test bed only, and the other one is being used as a as a test in one of the test chambers. So those two are not going to go to the ISS at all, and then the other two are being looked at as you know what's going on with these things. So what do you do? And when you still have a have a program to service that. You, you, there's just no way in God's green earth you're going to go ahead and get a new EMU up there or a new new spacesuit up there in time for the end of end of the uh, the ISS program. So you're just going to have to make do with what you got, and the resources for these things are really really small. So what do you do? Well, the NASA IG uh, made the following recommendations: one to develop and implement a formal plan to design 
produce and test the next generation of EVA suit. Um, in accordance with the exploration goals of the agency, the crew needs and the planned retirement of the ISS in 2024. And by the way, the NASA IG also indicated in its report that you're designing a new suit, okay? What are you designing it for? Are you designing it for the demands of ISS? Are you designing it for the demands of the uh, the Journey to Mars program? Are you designing it for a possible lunar lunar shot? You have to go ahead and focus. What are you going to go ahead and design this new suit for? And that, too, is going to be a problem going forward. Because if you're designing a suit, you don't know what the environment is that you're designing for. All right. The second the second thing they they suggested to conduct a study to compare the cost of maintaining the EMU spacesuits and developing the next generation of spacesuits and then applying the lessons learned from the operation of the existing EVA launch and entry abort systems that are that are currently in place that means you know we'll apply what you're learning from the Orion design that we're trying to trying to get get going and apply it to the future exploration uh, spacesuits as well to ensure uh, what they're saying, quote, the mitigation of non-life-threatening health risks or other injuries that can impair mission objectives, close quote. Let's not forget, we're still kind of trying to wrap our head around um, a mishap that occurred and uh, uh, nearly cost uh, Luca Parmitano a little bit of a a little bit of a surprise during a, an EVA, and we still kind of haven't really wrapped our head around that problem. That's one of the suits, by the way, that, that that's grounded, that we're trying to figure out what the heck's going on here. So, you know, again, we're, we're kind of... We're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place here with with maintaining these suits. We didn't really expect to... to you know, run these suits past their 15 years light, lifetime. We have and have done it rather adeptly, but their ages are starting to show. And we still need to support the ISS. We still need to do spacewalks for, for maintenance and repair. And can we continue to do it? And can we can do it, continue to do it safely? NASA IG being the, you know, the proverbial watchdog of this whole thing is saying, hey, Houston, we got a problem and we need to fix it. So it's something else, too, that we're going to keep an eye on for our audience, we'll keep keep track of this and see where they go. I don't want to just go ahead and take this report and file it because it's really, really critical to flying out the ISS by 2024. Sawyer, any thoughts? I mean, I know there are people already working on the future designs for spacesuits, but, you know, again, there's the space station that's going to be out there till 2024. And uh, at that point, add on, you know, what is it, 2017 now? So add another six, seven years onto that. Do you think they're going to be able to last six, seven more years through the end of the space station program? Well, that's what the NASA IG is calling into question. And they are trying to say, hey, you know, we, we've we've got to really, really make sure that we can still support these things. Right. I'm asking your opinion if you think that they'll be able to make it those seven years because I'm – Hopeful, but the last thing you need is an incident happening while you're out in space wearing one of the suits. 
Yeah, they've they've got no choice. They're going to have to make this work. And I mean, you could fall back on the Russian suits. Yeah, I guess. But um, wow, you know, we kind of dug this. We kind of dug this hole for ourselves again. And I don't know if there's a rope coming. We just may have to go ahead, bite the bullet, nurse these these suits. Uh, through what we can cannibalize the suits that we have to cannibalize and uh, it, it, just to keep the other ones going and it, it's it's a cruddy way of doing business but we may have to be stuck doing that um I'll, I'll go pit, ahead mark hey gene i'll i'll pitch in a little background i was uh taking a few minutes and watching nasa tv recently and mm-hmm. kate rubens was talking to a group at the uh, smithsonian and she made mention of the fact that in preparation for a spacewalk, that they put about 100 hours of time on station in getting the suits ready. Right. And, you know, being a, a maintainer type guy and working with the systems that I work with, I, I think the generalization probably fits uh, in this context that it just takes more maintenance time. It takes more close inspection. It takes more of everything to make sure that you're ready to go because I'm maintaining maintaining electronic systems that are uh, let's see commissioned in 1980 designed from the mid 70s so let's see do the math 25 35 over 40 years old and uh, they're still delivering 100 percent service other than a few months ago I had a few outages so same thing with spacesuits you can have the bad day where the wrong things go wrong at the wrong time and put somebody in peril and and I don't think that that'll happen I think that the safeguards and the inspections and the procedures that they have I think it'll keep everybody safe through the end of uh, station yeah, Mark, I'm just remembering the conversation that um, Sawyer, you and Mark, and I believe myself, had with two individuals that, um, I don't know if they're they're in that particular program anymore, but they maintain the spacesuits. I believe if you go ahead and t- listen to our STS-135 uh, report, we had on two uh, uh really, really good technicians that took us through how these spacesuits are maintained and how meticulously they they do go ahead and look at these things from stem to stern. Um, But... and Mark, again, I, the the first thing I thought about about was the was the B fifty two, which we're still flying. How old is that? Um, but I, I keep something keeps telling me that we're we're when it comes to spacesuits, they're in a very very unforgiving environment, and a B fifty two or something like that, they don't operate in those environments. We're talking a whole different kettle of fish. And I'm just I'm just hoping that we're we're, we're going to be rolling the dice. I grant you that, but um, I also think too that we're smart enough to realize you know when we need to pull back and when we need to go ahead and do things. And I don't think we're going to needlessly put anybody's life on the line. Need you know um, by by climbing into one of these EMUs. Is it is it a, a life um, impacting situation right now, I'd have to say no, but it could be in the future. And what I think the NSIG is trying to say is, hey, 
if we take some steps now, we could go ahead and and really one get the new suit online, but two try to see what we can do to nurse these other suits forward through the end of life of ISS, and and make sure we just don't have any mishaps. I mean, that's the ultimate goal is to keep everyone safe. So let's hope that they can stay safe until the new suits are ready. Yep. And uh, again, sorry, this is something we'll keep an eye on uh, for this audience. So uh, keep keep listening to Talking Space. Oh, exactly. Now, if only there were people out there that, you know, let's say when these suits are near their retirement, could help fix them or are great with fixing and building things. Wait, I can think of a group of people, a group of young students interested in STEM, possibly taking part in the first robotics organization, which... What do you know? Our very own Mark Ratterman is a mentor for. And you just came back from the championships, one of them, in Houston, Texas. Am I right? That is 100% correct. And I'm going to give you some uh, some quick facts about first championships. And that's plural because uh, I was in Houston uh, last weekend and currently in St. Louis as we speak. They're running through their, their finals and closing celebration there at St. Louis. Quick facts. Approximately 30,000 youth participated in this. There were 65,000 attendees at these events. Almost 1,400 teams from 39 over 39 countries around the world. And a number of volunteers that supported these events is over 2,500. Um, recently got an email from a, uh, a woman who is one of the key organizers of the first robotics competition events in the state of Florida. And she said that at Houston that there were 23 FRC teams that attended the Houston Championship. And of those 23 teams, seven teams went to the playoffs, and there were six fields that were going simultaneously. And of those six fields, as they went through playoffs, uh, but there were seven teams from Florida, uh, two of them went to semifinals, and one of them earned a uh, spot at finals of their division. So that's pretty good considering we're competing in Houston against 400 other teams. And actually, I just looked at the numbers on one of the apps that we use for tracking uh, the events and the teams at Houston there were 427 teams at St. Louis there's currently uh, 421 teams so 848 teams from around the world and these are students uh, in the case of first robotics competition FRC it's the high school uh, age group um, I'll post a link to a picture that one of our sponsors of our team which is the Lake City team get smart uh, a lady named Maureen Wilt, she's with Florida Power and Light, and FPL is one of our sponsors, which we're very thankful for. But she posted a picture, and it says, Finally found the northernmost team from at inside FPL territory. And, of course, that's at FRC3556, our team, coached by Teacher of the Year, Selena Cruz of Columbia City. And... Um, quite proud to see that because it's got a, a handful of our students and a couple of our mentors and and Maureen with FPNL who has uh, been kind and, and very helpful uh, in sponsoring our team. As, as I talk about uh, first, there's there's quite a few things that are that are critical to first being successful and here I mentioned uh, the stats on the number of teams and the youth that are participating in these championships and 
you know the the big thing is is the support of volunteers and sponsors. When you look at the list of sponsors from championships, you see a list of dozens of major corporations from all over the United States and around the world too. I'm sure I didn't take time to look at the breakdown, but major sponsors like um, Google, uh, NASA, Dow Chemical, and the list goes on and on and on. And it's those big companies that are critical to what goes on and given these students these opportunities to totally change their direction. We've had students in our in our little team that's only been around since 2011 say, I'm pursuing an engineering uh, degree in college and I didn't have any interest in that. And they mean that quite literally. Uh, in one case, I know the student was just a mediocre student. And being involved with this high school robotics team, he says, gave him the direction and gave him an interest in something that wasn't even on his radar prior to that. So uh, I'm going to give you some websites. Uh, Firstinspires.org, and we'll have a link in the show notes for that. And if you just look at the main page, you see uh, links for parents, kids, educators, volunteers, the different levels of, of robotics and I'm going to tell you a story here at the end about my involvement with the K through 4 age group, which was quite a treat, and a few stories and how the volunteers and some videos. So cruise around firstinspires.org and, uh, and learn some more about FIRST. Now, the reason that, uh, that I want you to be interested in FIRST is, is talking about volunteers. Now, there's a couple of people uh, that were there talking during workshops and conferences to the students, to the adults, to, to any and all that would come. And one spoke about the mysteries. As soon as I saw the title, I knew I had to go hear this. Mysteries of the Solar System as Revealed by NASA Robots. Hmm. Gee, I wonder what that's about. <laughs> well, I'll give you an idea. Here's a recording talking to this individual and uh, give you a little better idea. Well, we're here at FIRST Championships in Houston, Texas. I just had the delight of, of sitting through a presentation that my guest is going to tell us just a little bit about and then, more importantly, why we're here. So could you introduce yourself to a Talking Space audience? Sure. My name is Kathy Olkin. I'm the Deputy Project Scientist on NASA's New Horizons mission to Pluto. I was just giving a talk on mysteries of the solar system as revealed by NASA robotics spacecraft because we're here at a robotics conference and all these students are excited about science and STEM and I wanted to tell them some new discoveries that we have in our solar system made by unmanned vehicles. And one thing that caught my attention, you said on the NASA New Horizons flyby of Pluto that there was a period of time that the satellite had to operate for what length of time without any command from the ground to accomplish all of its goals on that flyby? Yeah, so we had a nine-day sequence of commands that we uploaded to the spacecraft seven days before our closest approach to Pluto. So for nine days, it was taking all those amazing images 
images of Pluto uh, as we were approaching and then flew past without commanding from the ground because it's about four and a half hours for one-way light travel time from Pluto to Earth. So there wasn't time to send individual commands. We had to put that sequence on board and, and let it go. Now, as far as why you're here at FIRST Championships in Houston, I saw some information on your your uh, bio for this presentation that you've got a connection with FIRST. So can you tell me what your connection is with FIRST currently sure. and why you participate with FIRST programs? So I've been a FIRST mentor for, I believe it's eight years, um, starting with the FIRST LEGO League uh, teams, which are fourth to eighth graders. And I'm currently both a mentor for FIRST LEGO League and FIRST Robotics uh, competition, which is the high school level uh, teams. And this is the way to connect and inspire the future, hands-on, experiential learning, learning things that you don't get at school. School is awesome, but you, you get that extra excitement when you're competing with a robot that you built. And it brings all those academic classes uh, into focus. Oh, this is why I need to understand circuits. This is why I need to understand that math. That's what it's all about. Could you mention what type of person could help out with FIRST programs as a mentor, you know, somebody that is willing to get involved yeah. with students? And here you're working with, did you say two teams right now? Actually, three FLL teams and one FRC team. Four teams. And your deputy project scientist. And it would seem like you're busy. And I am busy. I am very busy. So, but so I love this. This is what gives me energy. Working with the students, seeing them make connections and learn things, that's what excites me. I, and it gives me energy. And so that's what, how I want to spend my free time. And I'm going to bet that our listeners that are doing all kinds of jobs that are totally unrelated to the fun stuff we've just been talking about, that they've got a place. They do. They do. There is room for adults who want to help out. It almost doesn't matter what you do. There's room, obviously, for engineers and scientists. There's also room for, for teachers, educators, people who want to work with young people. Helping with the logistics on the team is a great way to get your feet wet. So there's so many different ways that adults can contribute to FIRST. Uh, give it a try. You'll love it. Thank you, Kathy. I look sure. forward to talking to you again about some of the fun, spacey stuff coming up. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so that was my first quick interview out in the hallway after one of the uh, presentations, and top-notch. I mean, it, it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to appreciate the connection that mentors and coaches and the, the families have with the activities that these teams undertake. It's really quite extraordinary. Now, just to, um, just to have a little more fun, we had a, uh, a breakfast one morning. It was for the mentors and coaches, and we had several speakers that talked to the group there. And afterwards, I asked one of them to, to give us a few thoughts as well. So I'm at FIRST Championships Houston, uh, just had a mentor and coach recognition breakfast, and one of the mentors that spoke, I'd, I'd like to ask him to uh, talk about mentoring and the, uh, the the talents that are part of mentoring and, and what you don't need to worry about, perhaps. Well, I, th 
I think the big thing that a lot of people get worried about is whether they need to be highly experienced long-term engineers to be a mentor on, on one of these robotics teams. The answer is absolutely no. You know, certainly that technical knowledge helps. And when you get down to the details of the design of the robot and the fabrication of the robot, that is good knowledge to have. But the reality is what a lot of these students really are trying to understand and really trying to get in terms of gained experience is different than the technical knowledge. It's understanding how to problem solve, how to take a requirement statement and break it down and turn it into manageable tasks, how to work together in teams, how to manage their time and resources. And those are all life skills that a lot of adults have almost independent of their technical career. And so in a lot of cases, that's the most valuable capability that the, the mentors can bring to their team and teach them basically just how to work on any style of project that, uh, that they, they can sort of show them by example, show them by experience. And those skills translate easily without having to be a highly technical, very knowledgeable engineer. Cool. And you've been mentoring with FIRST programs for how long? This is my 23rd year of mentoring my team. And your day job, can you tell us about that for a minute? So my name is Dave Lavery. I'm the program executive for Solar System Exploration at NASA headquarters. And I work on the Mars Exploration Program and the two rovers that are up on Mars, Opportunity and Curiosity. Those are my projects. Okay, so you hear some of the reasons and why I feel that first is important and for us uh, for us grown-up folk you know why we need to pay attention to it there's a video that will be linked in the show notes and uh, if you want to look for it it's the uh, the the organization that uh, that posts them is called official first and the video is stem where every kid can go pro and I'll ask you to uh, watch that short minute and 51 second video i think you'll enjoy it let your uh, kids see it if you have uh, sons and daughters show it to them show it to your neighbors uh, kids and i think that they'll see that this isn't quite the uh, <laughs> it's more than robots that's a that's a hashtag we use in social media and it really is more than robots so i think you'll enjoy watching that now, as I wind up my little dissertation here on first championships, i got to tell you about one of the eye-openers for me. I went to a conference that was on WeDo 2.0, and you can search for that, and you'll find a bunch of links right at the top of the search results. And WeDo 2.0 is the, <laughs> is the uh, part of the robotics for the kindergarten through fourth grade this is part of Lego education, and the WeDo 2.0 is a kit of, uh, of Lego bricks and uh, some uh, a, a processor and motors and, and sensors, and you build a robot. And thanks to the help of a, another mentor from uh, Oklahoma, uh, we built a dragster. And our dragster ran, and we programmed it, and I was having... A lot of, <laughs> I was having fun with it, even though it was a little challenging to interpret the symbology that was on the tablet into, you know, doing the right things to set up the program to run the robot. But it was a lot of fun, and I can see why the younger children that I saw throughout championships there in Houston, I can see why they were so engaged. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It makes a difference in any age group, and. <laughs> The, uh, the closing ceremonies, I did some uh, 
posts on Twitter for Talking Space. We were at Minute Maid Park, which is the home of the Houston Astros, and one of the uh, one of the statements that I heard is that First Robotics has taken over Houston. We took over the George R. Brown Convention Center. Uh, somebody that knew a friend locally who was telling him about the event, and the friend said, well, where are you at? And he said, George R. Brown. And he said, well, what part of it? And he said, no, we have the whole convention center. And apparently that's a little unheard of because that is a several-block-long, several-floor facility that uh, square footage can't imagine and the number of people that were there, it was uh, it was quite extraordinary. I also talked to a couple of the people that are there to keep us safe, some first responders, and I asked them, I said, how's the event been? They said, yeah, pretty quiet, you know, just a few little trips and, you know, people getting bumps and stuff, no no major things to worry about for, for people's safety. I talked to a Houston Police Department sergeant, and I asked him, and he said, well, this is really pretty laid back from what I'm used to. <laughs> and I laughed. I said, pretty laid back. I said, I'm a mentor with a team that has spent the last three months uh, putting almost every waking minute into either school or robotics or, you know, just enough time for family to keep from getting thrown out of their own families. And uh, it's definitely not a laid-back experience for the students and the volunteers. But uh, Houston PD, he said, yeah, this is pretty pretty calm. This is pretty, uh, pretty nice. And um, really, it's one of those things that if I didn't have anything to do and I wanted to go someplace and experience something interesting, I think I'd go to one of these robotics events. There's regionals. There's district competitions. There's uh, smaller events for, like, the uh, elementary school age parts of FIRST. And uh, if you can't find it, if you're looking for something, you think, well, there ought to be something in my area, get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Mark Ratterman, and uh, we've got links on our website where you can communicate also with us directly through other means. And get in touch with me. I'll help you find something because I want everybody to be connected and to really enjoy this. Here I am, 60 years old, and I'm building my first robot out of Legos. <laughs> that that really was pretty That's cool. cool. That was cool. And I got a reply from uh from Lego when I when I tweeted that and they said you know something like congratulations let us let us see your your final product and of course I forgot to get a picture at the right time so I didn't get to show my final product but Oh darn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I got to be a kid again and uh oh. it it brings everybody to life. Hey Mark, what was your role on on the team? What, what uh, could you you kind of describe what what being a mentor was like, and 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 what your you know you know j- just for the audience to get a flavor of of, of what it's like to to do this? Because first off, I've been looking forward to this discussion all week. I couldn't wait to hear because I was watching some of the pictures you you were taking from uh, uh, from Houston and on on the TS feed, and I was watching your feed as well, and I I. And I was watching actually the, um, I believe through YouTube or through um, oh, through video. their website. Yeah, yeah the, video the video was on uh, Twitch Twitch TV. Right, and, uh, I, I stand corrected. Twitch, sorry, Twitch. <laughs> yeah, I said YouTube. Uh, Thirty lashes of a wet noodle. Oh but, no, uh, there'll be stuff on YouTube. I'm sure. Um, 
So, what's your question again, Gene? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I blew it because I was. I, it's. It's. Kind of, what was it like being a mentor? What What role did you have on your team? And 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 how you know what 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 would you say the biggest contribution was as, as far as your team was concerned? Well, as we wind up the third season that I've participated with my local team, I found that my role hasn't changed drastically, but there's parts of it that I've I've gotten a, a better feel for where I fit, where I can contribute. We're a small team. We don't have that many students. We don't have that many mentors. So everybody wears, you know, every hat that comes along. Sometimes we just need a couple of people to, hey, open up the shop. Kids got work they need to do, and we got to have adults there. But uh, as a FAA technician and finding that I get pretty deep in the weeds a lot of times on our, on our procedures and our instruction manuals, I found that the rule book, which is 130 or so pages that we uh, had released to us uh, at the beginning of January, that that rule book is where I spend a lot of time for those two months that we're designing and building our robot because we got to make sure that we can compete and play the game to the best of our ability. So I pretty much stick my nose in that book and I look for every detail. And a lot of times we're literally looking at what's the structure of this sentence? These two sentences, uh, are they going to let us do something or does it mean we can't do something? And so I'm, I'm looking at the, I'm looking a lot at the rules. Um, I, I'd love to be able to deal with the uh, CAD design the software the computer design of the robot um not in my skill set not that i can't learn it but it's a lot to learn for an old guy the some of the uh, some of the uh cutting metal cutting wood putting things together yeah i could do that but there's other mentors on the team that do that better and are better at uh, at working with the students it, you got to find that balance between doing it yourself and giving enough instruction to let a student, you know, jump in and do it, or in some cases do it and fail. And so it's, it's that whole balance where, you know, the, the mentors could build a robot and we could go play, but it's not, our, it's not our role. We're there to keep the students safe, first and foremost, and second, to, uh, to guide them, to assist them, to answer questions, and to keep things moving sometimes. And... Uh, you know, so my role is a lot on the rules. Um, I focus on details everywhere I can. I don't want to reach the end of build season, which is six and a half weeks long, and take our robot to competition and find out that, oh, man, we're two inches too tall. <laughs> you know, and literally that can be the end of the game for you. If you don't fit the dimensions, the weight, if the design isn't, in accordance with the electrical uh, rules that we have and using the components that are allowed. Um, it's all pretty specific, and so um, that's, that's kind of where, where I help out. Okay, w- one more for you. What, as, as a mentor, what is your, your, your biggest takeaway from the entire experience? What do you think it actually gave you? What do you think you learned from it? That's a good question, Gene. I, I <laughs> I got to say that, you know, one thing I've learned about myself is that I can do a lot more than I think I can. I can do more than I'm comfortable with. And that the reward for really, in some cases, stretching and pushing myself, the reward far exceeds the, uh, the effort that goes into it. 
Now, as far as what I see, I see students that start out. We had rookies this year. I think we had seven rookies, perhaps. And here I am, you know, four months later, I'm seeing rookies that have amazed me at their, uh, at first, uncertainty. And, and then, as time went on, their willingness to jump in and tackle anything. And it also makes me realize the importance of the mentors to really keep things organized, to help them learn how to organize. And, um, you know, I'd, golly, the biggest thing is seeing the uh, what the students are accomplishing. It's seeing what they, what they do. Because this goes beyond what a school curriculum can provide. It really is teaching them some things that are... Uh, some of what they're going to see later on in life when they get out in the working world, and they, they have those ups and downs. Could you go ahead and say that, you know, from, you know, just from a soft skills standpoint, there's stuff that you've picked up over there that you can also translate into your working world as well? Yeah, yeah. In fact, at Houston, I was at a uh, one of the workshops where we had a speaker that talked about program management. And I'm sorry, but that is something I've never really thought about or even understood. And after hearing this woman speak about program management and how it was her life, it was how she it was how she worked, it was her job, and it was how she handled things in the personal sense. And it's like, hmm, this is something that I need to learn more about. And I guess it's uh, realizing that there's more to learn about, you name it. Is kind of uh, gives you pause to makes you humble. It sounds like it was such a uh, just such a rewarding experience. And and if if people wanted to, again, if people wanted to learn more about what your team is doing, is you know I I know they're on Twitter because I've seen them. I follow them. I think. Um, could you give the Twitter address out, and could you give the the URL to your uh, to your team's website to see if you know anybody locally? Uh, to where you live in Florida might be might be kind of uh, interested in 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 helping out you guys and um, j- just if also I believe the the firstinspires.org is the actual national site. So the name of our team uh, or the Twitter handle for our team is FRC three five five six. So first robotics competition FRC thirty five fifty six, and our website is. Team3556.com. Mark, thank you so much for sharing that all with us. I know I didn't say much because I'm just in awe of the amazingness of this. You know, I've worked with the first Lego League and at the Challenger Center, we have the Lego We Do 2.0s that you were talking about. And just to see the inspiration in these young kids. And then, you know, a few years later, here they are from middle school to high school, and now they're building robots. It's an amazing progression and it's so nice to see that and to hear all of the success story and how many people now are taking part of it filling up that entire convention center so thank you for doing what you do with that organization and thank you for sharing anytime love it and i think that is the absolute perfect note to end this show on so thank you to everybody who joined us here thank you for joining us gene mcculloch this was one heck of a ride sawyer i'm looking forward to 903 as am I, and thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Definitely a pleasure. Enjoyed it. And uh, anytime anybody wants to talk to me about FIRST, get in touch.
So we'd like to thank you as well for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or wherever it may be where you are. Thank you.